Welcome to episode eight of the Radical Narrative Podcast. I'm your host, Mylon Tatusis. Today, we're going to be talking about treaty nationhood and nation-to-nation agreements. This is specific to Treaty 1 to 11, a very specific geopolitical context in North America. And our guest today to help us unpack this is Jason Mercury. Jason Mercury is from Treaty 5 territory, Missipaustic Cree Nation. Aside from being an indigenous person who's heard these narratives growing up, He's also trained as a lawyer. However, he chose not to write the bar exam because he felt it would be a compromise on his indigenous nationhood. There's tons of important information in this podcast, so stay tuned and listen in. Can you introduce yourself, uh, who you are and where you come from? Okay. Yeah. Um, Jason Mercury, Indigenous cousin. Um, and I'm from Missis. My ancestral lineage is from Missipaustic Cree Nation. Um, the grandson of Louise Mercury and uh, proud son of former National Chief Ovid Mercury. And what do you do? I currently work for, the, for TFAO Inc., it's the project office for the summit of Treaty 5 Sovereign Nations. We get all of our direction and marching orders from the summit of Treaty 5 Sovereign Nations. And the summit of Treaty 5 Sovereign Nations is every member, every Indigenous member of Treaty 5. Uh, what type of work are you doing in this organization that you're involved with? So what we try to do is uh, remove ourselves from the Indian Act to restore our own governance systems, to restore our sovereignty, and practice that sovereignty. But we, we do it in a way that we're not imposing neocolonialism on our own communities. So what we try to do is listen to everybody in the community who has an opinion about something or a viewpoint or maybe an idea for a direction. And we consider that in the way that, uh, in the way that we understand our pre-colonial government structures to be, which is consensus wise. Yeah, and you said something really interesting just now where you said pre-colonial governance structures. And that's something I want to tap into with this podcast is have a conversation about our indigenous nationhood, our treaty governance, and and what we were actually trying to achieve as a political, peaceful, diplomatic, and friendship project with settlers. And we'll unpack some of that later. Um, but tell me about your upbringing and where you grew up. I grew up a little bit in Winnipeg and uh, mostly Toronto area. I got to travel a lot, and uh, so I, I guess for the, like the first uh, first part of my life, I guess I didn't really identify. I knew I was quite into like what they call Indian, but I never never really had a connection to the culture through that. Not until I started, not until I turned uh, early teenage years, and then obviously being raised by by my father, being being raised to believe in sovereignty was something that was always a consistent lesson in my life. You know. Like any any time any time we heard anything about uh, Canada's Canada has done this for First Nations people, my dad would be there to tell me the truth about that situation. Like, oh, we gave them a hundred million dollars for housing, and then he'd be there to sit down with me and be like, okay, well, let's do the math on that. So five hundred million, six hundred reserves. That's about one million per reserve, and it costs about two hundred thousand to build a house. Or maybe 125 to get a trailer up there. Out of that 1 million, that's maybe 10 houses, more like eight houses. But the community needs 15 or 20 houses. So really, how is that? How is that a generous deal? You know. And then when you when you compare like the what they call generosity back to the treaty, it's really just a treaty fulfillment. It's not generosity. Yeah, those treaty fulfillments, and and we'll have conversations about that. Um, because that's a really important context you're highlighting just this these equations that need to exist between us and the settler state and and the treaty dynamic that's really important um i followed you on social media and i was noticing your posts and your commentary your political commentary is really on point and really speaks to me too because where i grew up um treaty 6 territory nationhood and sovereignty our indigenous governance was really primary in a lot of the conversations we had growing up around the dinner table. And I noticed that you had the similar commentary in some of the things you share. And we're going to have a conversation about this and complete disclaimer to our audience. We're going to talk about this in, in our own way, the best way we know how, using words that some people may not agree with. I know there's a lot of tone policing and there's a lot of uh, legalese involved in these conversations, but we're going to go ahead and have this public conversation anyway, because people need to hear it. 
And you also highlighted, because we had a conversation before this, where you highlighted that you have a unique upbringing in terms of um, having to navigate the urban spaces and the urban centers, but you also connected to your family to help you navigate the political conversations that we'll, we'll ultimately be having here today. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. I was born in Winnipeg, so I'm, I'm back in Winnipeg now, back in my official hometown. Um, but I never, my ancestral lineage is from Mississippi Cree Nation, uh, a grandson of Louise Mercury, but I never lived on the reserve. So I don't have that uh, living on the reserve kind of experience. Seen enough, uh, but still not enough to, like we're not going to pose, be a poser about it, right? I grew up, I grew up mostly in metropolitan areas. Um, but at an early age, around pre-teen years, I started really getting into what my identity as an Indigenous person was. Um, and that's hard to do in, in city escapes uh, because either you're going to a, a friendship center or, or some organization that has various nations doing various nation teachings, right? So it's hard to get a specific, especially, especially in Toronto area. It was uh, like you got Mohawk people sharing Anishinaabe stories or Cree people sharing Anishinaabe stories and it gets muddled sometimes. So just like defining what your culture is. I've always, I've always turned back to my family for that. Yeah, and there is sort of like a pan-Aboriginalism or a pan-Indigeneity that sometimes takes the forefront in a lot of people's conversations and how they position themselves. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's beneficial for sure because you can see the similarities between all of our cultures. Um, I think the main similarity, though, is, well, the one, the one undeniable similarity between all First Nations in Canada would be their governance structures. Like, we're all... We all fall under the Indian Act now, and that's the, the exceptionally pr- oppressive system, right? And we all want to, uh, like, I, I haven't met any First Nation governance systems or any uh, any bands, I guess, was what they call them. And I haven't met any that say, no, we're happy under the Indian Act. We like it. It's good. Canada takes care of us. It's problematic because we keep running to Canada for like solutions, et cetera. And we're not really turning to Canada saying, you know, we have these treaties. We don't need to ask you. You need to step up and start putting more on our plate because that's what we assigned to us, what we agreed to do. And yeah, you highlighted something interesting where you said specifically that you, you did grow up in like the metropolitan center, the urban centers and and it is true that there is almost like a pan-Aboriginal or pan-Indigenous um, culture that does exist. And yeah, there's pros and cons to that for sure, like you're highlighting. But then also uh, one dynamic that exists too is that sometimes when we're in those spaces or young people are navigating at that stage in their life, they're also fed like the Canadian identity. And they're fed like the Canadian political system and the melting pot theory or whatever it's called, multiculturalism in Canada. Um, and then sometimes they buy into that. So sometimes they actually buy into like being a Canadian and, and, and then choose to invest in the political, social, and even economic culture of Canada, which in my eyes is settler colonial. Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, it's not any different than the strategy they put in place when they created the Enfranchisement Act. Right? Like early 18th century, they had this idea that the only good Indian was going to be a civilized Indian who's going to identify the way that we identify, have the same beliefs, have the same education. For God's sakes, if, if an Indigenous person wanted to become a doctor, they had to sit in front of a panel of non-Indigenous doctors. This is like back in the 18th, 19th century. They had to sit in front of a panel and explain to them how, basically how white they were. Yeah, and like in many ways, that kind of system and approach still works today and is still in play today in, in some cases in some disciplines and, and systems. That's been such a consistent brainwashing strategy that, yeah, you're right. When we get to the city, we have to adapt. You know, we don't have, most reserves don't have as many markets as a small town. And then we fall into this trap of like, oh, well, this is, this is the way it is. This is the way it's supposed to be. And no education system that I've been through has really done a, a diligent job on teaching what the treaties are. Then when, when our Indigenous 
when our youth get into the city and it, like think about it, it's the same thing as residential schools who's their support system who's around them and they might have family but so much was lost in the early 19th century that we're like our languages for instance right we lost so much of that through residential schools people became afraid to speak it our culture was made illegal for around 50 years you know potlatch laws and whatnot which they interpreted to mean indigenous culture we were always under the power of some indian agent who was going to depict the behavior of our women and depict the behavior of our people and act as judge and jury when they whenever they felt we were out of line with their system. So then, yeah, we get into the city and either we don't want to be there or nothing about us really exists. Yeah. And then, yeah, what you're saying is true when you were talking about how like even the education system doesn't really um, bring into the classroom our narratives of, of nationhood and our narratives of who we are even politically. Like even the assumption today is that we don't have a political culture. We don't have a system of governance. Therefore, we have to partake in the settler colonial political structure. Well, that's that was a whole interpretation of being the uncivilized savage, right? Because we didn't structure our governance systems the way they did. They did. And because we, we honored our women and their the roles and powers that they had within our communities, and they didn't. They didn't have any rules for the women. They didn't have rules for the women until around 1960. So here's this here's this uh, very egotistical nation, I guess we call them that. Let's just call them racist. These racist people came in and said, we're the right, we know the way, and you guys aren't doing it our way, so you obviously don't know how you manage it. But, but when you actually, when you dig deeper into what our governance structures were, in this area anyway, we learned that we had annual gatherings and nations would come from all over and we would all you know, sit around together, share ceremonies, share stories and, and talk about what's going to happen with, with herds or lands or migrations, different patterns, right? Like who's who's hunting in this area and can we all use that area? I mean, yeah, we had wars and shit like that. But obviously, we're going to have wars. We're humans than anybody else. But at the end of the day, it was more of a... Like our governance structures were consensus based, right? And you can't really have, you can't really, when you compare that to capitalism, which is me first and the gimme gimme's, I want to be on top. I want to climb that mountain and be at the top of the heap, right? Our nations didn't work like that. The Inu nation didn't work like that. It would gather around and if someone disagreed or if a group disagreed, then it wasn't just a, well, too bad, we're going to do it anyway. It was a, well, let's help you understand what it is that we're trying to do and We'll try to understand what your view is so that we can move on together and nobody is holding the group back. Very collective. Yeah, very collective historically. Uh, like you say, very collective historically and very similar out here on the prairie where we did have um, general consensus-based governance systems. Uh, we knew one another. Uh, we advocated for peace and diplomacy. Um, the Most of the time, you know, we tried to advocate for that. But like you said, of course, there was always conflict there's always warfare. So things weren't perfect, but they worked better than, than you know, things work today for us. <laughs> right. And I, well, that comes from the values that we used to teach, right? So when we're talking about education, um, when you look at education as a treaty, right? A lot of people think, okay, well, that means I get to, I get funding for school or I get to, I get to attend universities and be relatively uh, unbiased against or whatever, right? When you look at the treaty right to education, to me, that always that, that means you're sitting with your elders, you're learning your stories, you're learning your ceremonies, you're learning where the best medicines are out in the out on the land, right? You're learning about why that rock is considered sacred. Or why are these? Why is this area not used for certain things, right? Like uh, Chunaha, uh, Chunaha, Chunaha Nation out in BC had that court case against. The grizzly bear spirit mountain. Uh, developers wanted to create a ski a ski resort on this mountain, and the Chinaha people were saying, "Well, no, the grizzly bear spirit lives there." And that went into their court. But it it shows you the the complete contrast between how land is viewed. Like this is it's not just our land, and it's not just our children's land. It's our you know the spirits that are with us, and we learn things from that. And to me, that that's like our education system, being on the trap line with your with your uncles or your grandfathers or your fathers being out hunting for like weeks at a time or months at a time even that was that was all education and then so through that concept and paradigm you know the treaty right to education and engage in peaceful and diplomatic relationships with the other party on the other side we should by rights then have the freedom and the autonomy to maintain that education system 
not just that we should, it's that we do. Like we, we absolutely still have that sovereignty. There's nothing in any of the numbered treaties that say anything about the surrendering of our governance to be ruled over by the Queen. Nothing. Not even in the negotiation. So what happened was instead of, like our treaty was signed in 1875, Treaty 5 was signed in 1875, and then in 1876, the colonial government created the Indian Act. But there's no mention of the treaties in the Indian Act. Yeah, why are there no mention of treaties in the Indian Act? Because if they're so foundational to our nationhood and to the presence of Canada, why wouldn't they mention them in the Indian Act? I look at it this way. The only reason Canada exists is because we made treaties permitting Canada to exist where they exist, right? And that shows that shows governance and that shows sovereignty. But then they impose this Indian Act and they come in and say, "Well, we're not going to we're not going to treat your women with respect as leaders." So we're going to elect a headman or a chief, or we're going to suggest that you elect, or we're going to impose this system so that you do elect one figure. That changes the whole power dynamic between our, how our nations used to uh, cooperate with each other or coexist. So let's unpack treaties. Let's unpack treaties because for me as a PhD candidate and student, I always encounter like settlers or I always even encounter some of our own people who assume that treaties are an extension of colonialism, that they're land surrenders and things like that. Um, but let's unpack it from our Indigenous perspective, especially for the listeners who are not familiar uh, with what those are and, and how they are. All right, well, let's imagine you're, you're part of your community and you hear that the government of Canada wants to make a treaty with you. And there's reasons for you to want to coexist. There's reasons for you to not want to coexist. So you and your nation show up to this treaty negotiation. Yeah, and then from the context of like treaties with the crown, there is a very specific reasoning behind why they had to have treaties with us. Because the Royal Proclamation really set up how the treaty process occurred. And the Royal Proclamation says that you have to have a consensus of the people from the Indigenous nation before, before you take up a settlement. Yeah, and then that decision to do that didn't come from like one authority figure because we have multiple people involved in our nationhood from multiple perspectives and multiple dynamics within our nations. So it wasn't, it wasn't at all. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go talk to the chief and the chief said, I could build my cottage here. It was nothing like that. But when our, when our nations went to the treaty, we, we didn't bring pen and paper. We brought, we brought our pipes, we brought our ceremonies and we brought our elders. And for us, that treaty is written into the pipe into that those ceremonies right and it bothers me that there's a there's a treaty seven pipe that sits in the royal ontario museum behind glass and i was i was taught that that pipe is now suffocating because it's not where it's supposed to be yeah and you're really getting into like the spirit and intent and the cosmology we brought into our treaty making processes and this differs greatly from what Canada teaches and how settlers interpret treaties and how they even look at you know the historical treaties one to eleven so what, what Canada has come to rely on and what they teach people is that there's a written treaty. They don't talk about the oral history of the treaty. They don't talk about our perspective of the treaty. They just say, this is the written text. And because it's written in the text that we cede and surrender all things to the queen, then they cede and surrender all things to the queen. But if you talk to some of the elders within our nations, they say, no, those, those words were never used. Those words were never written down. Uh, there's speculation, some of it partially proven. I haven't seen it myself, so I can't really verify it. But there's speculation that when the treaties went back to Ottawa, scribers in Ottawa were like, mm, I don't like the way that sounds. Let's make it clear. Absolute surrender. So what, we, what, what Canada is relying on and what they teach us all is nothing more than their unilateral interpretation of the treaty. And they miss that whole, that whole aspect of it. Yeah, and they flipped that narrative to, you know, conquer and take over the land when we had a different intention of coming together. We entered into the treaty as a peace and, well, we call it peace and friendship, but the spirit and intent was to share the land, right? Like, for God's sakes, our chiefs weren't sitting there going, yeah, you know what, take everything and, and we'll just live in this quiet little pocket of uh, land that we can't really use. Like, congratulations, Canada, you, you did it. Yeah, I like how you said that they that our, our leadership or that indigenous leadership in treaties didn't sit there and say take it all because even just from like the logical human standpoint, that just doesn't make sense. Like who in their right mind would agree to surrendering, you know, traditional hunting lands and territories that you depend on for survival? Yeah. Like I've stood many times I've stood out on high peaks or on waterways and I've looked out on everything that our ancestors would have been responsible for. And be like, how could how could anybody have it in their mind that, yeah, don't no, go ahead, take it for nothing, for nothing, for five bucks a year, maybe some twine and 
maybe some ammunition. Like it's just completely, yeah, like you said, it's completely illogical. But that's Canada's logic, right? And for me, that's why that's why I can't identify as Canadian. I'd like to. I think what our ancestors were signing at the treaty was was to create a great nation. But what happened was Canada said, okay, we're treaty partners and kind of shoved us into the back pocket and left us the most impoverished people in all of the land that our ancestors thrived on for centuries. Yeah, that's Canada's logic. And out, out here on the prairie, like in, in rural Saskatchewan and, and like, well, Treaty 6 territory, that, that logic like exists in, in just the average dinner table conversations that settlers have where yeah they say well they sold the land for like five bucks a year or they sold the land for a box of bullets so kind of feeds into that stereotype and and that um that stereotype that we're not a smart people but then how you're explaining treaty and you're unpacking this for us and and saying no there was uh peace and friendship intentions there was you know ceremonial concepts brought to these conversations and and canada reinterpreted that to their their benefit it makes a lot of sense because a lot of people don't realize that like a lot of people don't have access to hearing what you're sharing with us right now yeah that's that's true like uh, i've been to some communities where we've given engagement talks and even the older people have been like we've i've never heard this before but that's uh that's no fault of our own people either. That's Canada's education system has, like I said, we we entered treaty, but they didn't legislate the treaty. They legislated the Indian Act, which they ascribed themselves, prescribed themselves control over us. And there is this assumption today that that the Indian Act is treaty. Really, they're two different things entirely. So you hear people critiquing what they think is treaty, but they're actually critiquing what, what the Indian Act has done. Yeah. I hate the Indian Act. Uh, There's no other act in all of Canada that says this is how we treat this race or this group of people. Nothing. There's only the Indian Act. And we all get cards that we carry around in our pockets to prove that Canada has set us us aside from the rest, but under an oppressive control. Yeah, and it seems like some people get too caught up in like defending what we have access to through the Indian Act. And really, there's a bigger picture in play here in terms of our nationhood and the systems that we could establish. But in terms of Treaty 1 to 11, we're talking about like peace and diplomacy in context to, um, I guess, like the northern part of North America. And here there's a very specific treaty discourse like we're talking about here. There's a treaty cultural peace and friendship and even diplomatic discourse in play that, you know, a lot of communities in Treaty 1 to 11 maintain and, and advocate for. Um, but what distinguishes Treaty 1 to 11 concepts um, from other treaties that, you know, like a Western white trained lawyer or even like an American lawyer or, or an international lawyer um, may not fully be aware of? Um, I think it was they progressively learned um, how to subjugate us over their time. Like they started with the peace and friendship treaties out in, in Mi'kmaq territory. And then it went into the, like the two row wampum territory. And then the Robinson Huron treaties uh, in uh, North and South Ontario, basically. And then when they got to us, they were like, well, because there was always disputes, right? People people in Mi'kmaq territory would say, no, this is our agreement isn't about this. And the Mohawks would say, no, this isn't what our, our treaty was. And the Anishinaabe would say, no, this isn't what our treaty was. So when they got to us, I think their idea was to write it down so it would be inarguable. And, and that, to me, that's one of the, the more distinguishing parts was that there's a a full, fully typed out script for each nation that was involved in, in the making of treaties, the treaties 1 through 11. I work for um, the project office for the Summit of Treaty 5 Sovereign Nations. So we're specific to Treaty 5. And that's my ancestral territory too. So, And how is it working for your nation with these conversations in play where you're actually looking at nationhood and looking at sovereignty and operating from that place? It's super, super rewarding to to be involved in those kinds of uh, those kinds of discussions. Yeah, and then for me, like to position myself in the conversation, I'm I'm coming at things from um, Treaty Six territory, and again, we we have our oral histories and cultural practices tied to that um, peace and diplomacy and friendship project. Um, but at the same time, too, like I like how you highlighted that that Canada was learning in the process of. Um, of treaty making as they as they moved west and then ultimately through treaty you know and in the number treaty areas they began to really structure it um in a more like written formal way so all the pomp and things like that because we have stories of you know sitting at at the treaty negotiations and there's a lot of pomp like a lot of um flair and and things like that when alex morrison alex morris would have these um 
negotiations and meetings with us. But then also, too, like on our narrative side of things, we have stories of where we were also learning how to engage in negotiations, uh, the crown and, and how to sort of get into these discussions in a way that could be beneficial for us. And we knew that there was wars taking place in the South and in the uh, Southern Plains and even the Dakota War of the 1860s and that there was very real conflicts with these people if things didn't work out and that they were capable of violence. Like that didn't escape us. And then I think like some people tend to not take that into consideration. They tend to assume that we were beaten down people already. But no, it was actually, you know, in Treaty 6 and in a lot of the treaty territories, our, our nations were strong and they were resilient. Uh, residential school wasn't a thing at that time per se for our people. So they're politically and consciously and culturally aware. And then they engaged in these in 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 good faith to to try and create some sort of project where peace and friendship and diplomacy could exist uninhibited. But like you're saying, it, it didn't work out that way. No, and it, it, I think our people learned from other people's experiences too. Um like in the prairies down south, there was a little encouragement from that to try to extend peace to the settler nations, as opposed to like having them come up here with their Gatling guns. Like we all, we sometimes hear like, oh, they were we were starving people. We were just weak and wounded and starving. And to some degree, that that did exist. And to another degree, that existed at the hand of Canada, who refused to extend assistance to us, right? Even though we taught them how to survive in the lands and make use of our resources. When we needed their help, they turned their back on us. And part of the treaties for me is, is uh, like, we can't, we can't just watch them take everything. So let's make an agreement with them that says we're all on the same. We're all going to be one nation. And I, I use that term loosely. Like, I don't really think that the ancestors were like, yeah, let's all become Canadian. I, re I really don't think so. And when you talk to the elders, they, they confirm that. Yeah, and I agree. I, I do know that there was um, intention in, 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 there was obviously intention in treaty making and there was obviously an intention to sort of secure a pathway forward together in a way that may not have been tried elsewhere in the Americas because colonization, colonization in the Americas was really brutal. And um, you look at the historical records and you look at history in general and there was very aggressive plays by settlers to conquer the land and the people that are there and America was full of violence during this time and and I've always heard as as there was a it was a goal for us to secure our our livelihood and and to secure a way forward to live a, a healthy life uh, without the threat of violence or without the threat of having to defend yourself and and engage in warfare over an extended period of time uh, there's a treaty clause uh, to continue in the eradication of life. And that clause isn't just what Canada has interpreted. Again, this is this is how Canada controls the narrative, right? Our avocation of life means hunting, fishing, trapping. And I'm like, well, no, our avocation, our way of living includes our governance structures, includes our education systems, and includes our, our views of our relationship with the land and our responsibility to that land. And those are things that Canada can't legislate. They can't legislate for us because in the treaty, the, the clause that says continue in their avocation of life, that, that means to our ability to maintain our governance. Because remember, that, again, there was nothing in the treaty that said you surrender your life to our ways. There was nothing like that. So continuing in our avocation of life, which is a written portion of the text of the treaty, coupled that with the with the oral history of our our, our nations. Navigation of life means we have every right to continue in our own governance structures, to write our own legislation if we choose to write our own legislation, or continue on in an oral. Many states exist without a formal written constitution. They have written laws, but they don't necessarily have a written constitution. Yeah, and it's really cool you highlighted that because in a previous podcast, we talked about how um, constitutions in Canada and the U.S. sort of have this like supreme, almost like universal law type feel to it where you can't go in and, and rewrite them or you can't go in and adjust them. And Chile in the South is, is rewriting their constitution. And I think France wrote their constitution over a few years. And in 2008, they amended it multiple times. So they actually went in and amended the constitution. Canada and the U.S., for some reason, like constitutions are just like some sort of like real um, big deal. And there's also like a push for our communities to have to write their own constitutions um, and, and sort of come up with those sort of governing documents. How is the Canadian constitution a problem in the treaty conversation that we're having here? 
Canada came in and wrote this constitution, put section 9125 in there and said, yep, we now rule over the Indians. But you, you can't rule over people without a surrender. And you can't rule over people without uh, defeating them in warfare. Like that's the, those are the international laws behind it. But again, with in terms of like an international view of the treaties, without a doubt, they're international treaties. But Canada has has treated them domestically. But there's there's a falsehood to that. Like how can you treat nations to nation relationships as something domestic? Canada needed our permission to settle on the lands. That shows that we weren't subject to Canada. So. The, the domestic treaty view is completely, uh, what's the word, asinine, ridiculous. I'd say it's completely ridiculous because you can't make treaties with your subject. Like Canada is not going to make treaties with Toronto, right? Because Toronto is already part of that whole system. We were never part of that system, even after treaty. And that that's what proved our sovereignty at an international level. And then this is where the UN comes into play, because even with the UN discourses, there's some problems. You know, the United Nations is all a bunch of bedfellows, primarily made up of colonial states. Well, maybe not primarily, but with several colonial states involved, Australia, New Zealand, America, Brazil. And then, like, none of them have really appreciated or respected the indigenous ways of being. So they haven't considered us states. We do fit the definition of states. We have our own territory. We have our own languages. We have our own culture. We have commonalities within our own people. And we have our own way of governing. Or What Canada's done is they've imposed this Indian Act, which says, no, you govern according to how we tell you to govern. Yeah, and you're giving us a lot to unpack and reflect on here because a lot of people don't know this and a lot of people aren't aware of, you know, the political ramifications of of, of treaty and indigenous nationhood here in, in Canada and in treaty territories. And the other thing about treaties is uh, one of the reasons why we encounter so much, uh, so many people who don't know anything about the treaties. No, I think in 1929, 1930, they instituted a law that said lawyers cannot represent Indigenous issues, especially in terms of land. And that went on for, I'd say, a good generation or two, which means there was no way for us to fight Canada, even through their own legal system. And they weren't coming to our legal systems to, to make amends. So there was no way for us to argue with Canada that they're not honoring the treaty because all of their, their whole system made it illegal for us to even have a voice. So then you've got generations of people saying, you know, what happened? All of a sudden, all of a sudden their laws changed and we were allowed to, again, quote unquote, allowed to have representation within their system. And all these land claims started popping up by the numbers. And then you've got this whole, all this Canadian population saying, well, where the hell are they? Why are they to suddenly want the land? It's not that we suddenly wanted it back. It's that we finally had access to some form of justice to get that land back. And again, justice is its own, uh, justice is its own misused term, right? Like we're, we're going to the oppressor state through the oppressor system that's intended to uphold that oppressive system. And we're saying, hey, recognize our sovereignty. Yeah, and there's definite ironies there that we have to be aware of too. But we'll probably have to unpack that land claim stuff in another podcast. So what would happen like in the most ideal world if Canada said, okay, your sovereign nations figure it out and we'll do the nation to nation thing? And if Canada does that, then you know we get we get we get access to our resources back. We get governance structures and jurisdiction over not just our children, but our our ways of being, our use of the land, our use of uh, the way that we treat animals. You know, they lose a lot of what they think is their power. Yeah, and and this is the ongoing battle that's taking place. Is is simply just like trying to get people aware of these conversations again. In the wake of residential school, in the wake of Indian Act, in the wake of, you know, can Canadian assimilation and just like the societal culture that makes us and makes it easy for us to forget who we are and where we come from in the political sense. And it's always been uphill battle, but I think it's uh, the awareness, I think now, even from 10 years ago, like with your podcast, for example, people are finally talking about these things, putting it out as not as education, but as as like truth, as information. And that's what I tried to do with, with social media, you know, as opposed to like posting pictures of my meals every day. I would post something that was like, has anybody ever thought about you know, why why our ancestors would take all of creator's land and say, give it to Canada? We understood our responsibility. So we couldn't We couldn't give that up. 
Yeah, I like how you said that too. And and like for me, growing up in Treaty Six territory, we we heard very similar narratives around treaty, around nationhood, around the Canadian project to assimilate and colonize us, and how it's been ongoing. And then I think when I got into like university and and my grad school program in Canada, and and just looking at Twitter and when Twitter blew up, and then you kind of started to notice people from other territories who had similar narratives who had similar like cultural and political understandings around nationhood. And, and that was really cool to see. And I think that's how we did meet is, is through social media where I started to see your, your posts on sovereignty and nationhood and things like that. Yep. Yeah, same thing. And, and it, we're reaching each other and that's great. We're strengthening each other, but we're not really getting that message to people who, whose ears are already closed. Right. And for me, this is where, when I went through law school, there was very little information about treaties. It was, I was constantly raising my hand in class and, well, this is injustice and this is wrong. And that's not my viewpoint. And that's not how I understand things. But, but I think if I went to law school 20 years earlier, there'd be, I'd be silenced or, or hushed. But when I, when I attended, people were more open to to that truth and I think that, that I think that's great like that's whereas before there would have been 20 students out of 200 who would have listened now there's maybe 100 and 150 who actually listen right and that's that's a sign of change I think people are starting to really really understand the concept that no we did not surrender and the only the only reason we're considered Canadian is because Canada tells you that we're Canadian I have, yeah I have a friend who just found our podcast and and found an episode I did with uh, Southpaw a podcast based out of Los Angeles uh, they do a mixed martial arts podcast and, and tie it into politics. And they had me on there to talk about decolonization. And I shared it on my social media and, and she clicked it and listened. And uh, we became friends because she was going through this realization of, of the politics that she may not have been introduced to and that she wasn't introduced to in law school. And I mean, I hope like I, I hope you're out there, Jasmine, listening to this and that this journey that you're on in particular is really um, is is something that really needs to happen, that people need to go through this process of almost re-educating themselves to the truth and the real history of what, take pla- what takes place here, what took place here historically. And, and you're also right when you say that, you know, things are changing slowly and gradually, and I hope they change in time for our benefit. Um, but I also have another student that I used to work with um, who is in law school now and wrote a paper about treaty nationhood and indigenous sovereignty, and she's settler, and, and she was talking about how um, we have to give indigenous or how indigenous people have sovereignty and they have autonomy and that has to be respected and that we should just start backing off as a settler Canadian state. And she got good reviews on it. And um, that was surprising for me to hear. But she also did say, you know, it was the older lawyers, the older dude lawyers who who were really turned off by her paper and, and didn't really um, see much um, um, value in it. But, you know, the younger people coming up are starting to sort of see that we need to have these conversations and figure out a way to navigate through. And I think she won an award for that paper. I think she won like a, a some sort of award for it. This just speaks to how Canadians don't hear these narratives and they just assume that the Canadian state's positive and awesome. And then when they go get their education, they they realize, you know, that, well, I hope they realize that because I know she was going through the process of realizing that the law system that she was invested in and the political system she was invested in and taught to be invested in ultimately was still causing problems for Indigenous people. Yeah, totally. That, that's why I chose not to practice law. Um, like I didn't complete the bar system for a couple of reasons. For me personally, law school was great. I, I learned a lot, but I learned a lot on how the non-Indigenous people view the world and how they think. But I also learned like how they create laws and those types of things I can bring back to my nation. But what I couldn't ever do was subscribe to the idea that Indigenous powers, political or otherwise, come from the Indian Act. And like that was, that's something I would, I would forever choke on because I, like I said, I grew up understanding Indigenous people as sovereign nations oppressed by a Canadian system. And the last thing I could do was file a complaint to the court and say, you know, we make our bylaws based on the Indian Act. Like, no, we, we make our laws based on our, our inherent sovereignty, which was never lost. And that's, for me, that's why I couldn't, I couldn't practice it. So I, I turned my strengths to try to rebuild our own nations uh, through governance, through justice, through whatever the direction of the, of the actual community members is, right? 
Yeah, and I and I feel very similar. Like I'm I'm dedicating my work and my projects to you know building up our nationhood again and creating you know the infrastructure and the scaffolds we need to to be strong again. And and for me, like that's really rooted in the nation to nation relationship. Like I. I for me, I personally don't care what Canadi- Canadians do on that side of the equation, um, but I want them to respect what we do on this side of the equation and the relationship. So, so how does how is the treaty nation to nation relationship? How does it have real political implications? Because it does. Uh, what are the implications for like a, a realized or a reestablished nation to nation relationship today? Uh, the benefits to everybody would just be substantial. I don't have any question about that at all. Uh, if if you honor the treaty, which says we share the land, then you're saving all this money in court battles. You know, Canada is not saying here's $2 billion for housing. We have access to our own resources. We can build our own. Funny little anecdote on that was uh, when Twitter did blow up. Remember that whole education act that was coming out? Well, when that came out, I was I was working as a funding and program development for a, a First Nation child welfare organization. And I got sent to this thing to learn about a recreation grant. But it was something that... Uh, the Governor General uh, Johnson, I think his name was. It was uh, it was under his envelope, so he was there promoting it. So we're sitting in this room, and these, this uh, security guy comes in and goes, "Well, before the Governor General comes in, I want you to all just sit still, be careful, like don't do anything jumpy or anything like that. Don't be suspicious. Listen to him respectfully. Applaud if you can at the end, and then we'll be on our way." So very like the hell's this guy? So he comes in with his entourage, and he gives his little spiel, and he leaves. And after the after the um, after his little talk, I went and I sat out in the hall. And I was just sitting there minding my own business. And I, I see him walking up the hall with his entourage. And I think, you know what would be funny if I, I got a picture of this guy, sent it to my dad. I went up, I approached him. I said, hey, do you mind if I get a picture of you? And he goes, oh, yeah, well, who's your dad? So I tell him it's Ovid Mercury. And his eyes light up because my dad was pretty progressive in his day. Still is. Still very active. In, indigenous people don't retire. Eh? We can't. We have too much. But anyway, at one point, the attorney general says, well, walk with me. I'm like, okay. So I'm walking with this guy and he turns to me out of the blue and he says, well, what do you think of the Education Act? In the presence of the governor general, he's supposed to be some sort of pressure of your what you say and whatnot. But I don't, I don't really ever subscribe to that kind of thing. And I just flat out told him, I said, you know what? I don't like it. He goes, well, what don't you like about it? And I said, just what I said earlier, I said, well, the treaties, the treaties recognize our inherent right to education. So you shouldn't be making an education act for the indigenous people. We should have our own indigenous uh, education act. We can create these things ourselves. And if the treaties were honored, then you would recognize that. So he just goes, uh, well, don't you want the money? And I said, well, again, if, if the treaties were honored, we wouldn't even need to ask for money. We'd have access to the same resources that you took from us, except we'd have abilities to say what we're going to use those resources for. And if we did profit, if we benefited from the treaty as our ancestors intended for us, then we would have the access to build our own education systems, our own institutions, and we wouldn't need Canada to give us any quote-unquote generous handouts. Yeah, so to this guy, you were just sitting in, in, in the hall there, chilling, and he figured he could, you know, talk with you and, and maybe you would kind of agree with what he had to say in the moment, but then you break it down for him. And then so when you broke it down for Governor General Johnston at the time, what was his response to this? And he says, well, well, change it. And I said, well, I mean, it tends to. But it, 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 that's how ingrained that idea of uh, the suppression of Indigenous sovereignty is. Like, this is the Governor General of Canada who's supposed to represent our interest as much as Canada's interest, supposed to know the treaty and honor that treaty. But they view it as uh, nothing more than a seed and surrender. And they don't look beyond that written word. That's, that's what they know is true. But, I mean, that story just speaks to, like, the settler colonial belief system that is that we can't they have to erode who we are um and and they have to erode what we establish through peace and diplomacy through treaty like the you know the the structure and the system of nation to nation and sharing the land sharing resources and you're providing like you're laying that out how that's important and vital and still in play but it's almost like they they're consciously trying to assimilate and erode what our ancestors established and, and just basically integrate us into, you know, the political system, the economic system. And like, even just the fact that he said, well, don't you want the money? <laughs> it just speaks to like, like the underlying intention. And like, even if we just look at like our resources and our territories, like the money that is being offered through the settler state is, is nickels and dimes compared to, to what's really out there. And um, what we legitimately, you know, have access to, not to monetize the land in any way, 
But I mean, if we just put it in that comparison of currency, the way some people could understand it and think about it. Well, I think also this, when indigenous nations say we have our own governance structures, and we do, um, Canada has INAC, or Indigenous Services Canada, and the, whatever that reconciliation party is now. And that is a tremendous amount of money being flowed through like uh, that administration office, right? Well, with First Nations people, we, we should be able to administer those funds ourselves. So when you honor the treaty and you let go of this control factor that you have, that you pay your own citizens to help control the indigenous populations, you eradicate that, flow the money through this actual mutually beneficial agreement, sharing in the bounty and benevolence, like the treaty promises. And then I'd, I'd be... I'd be amissed if you didn't save a lot of money. So you're highlighting this nation-to-nation agreement, and you're highlighting the importance of treaty and our concepts um, around treaty and our intention with it. And then also you're highlighting, you know, how the settler Canadian state is actively attempting to erode that for their own interest. But even for our podcast audience, we do have um, listeners who are settler, um, settlers who are invested in settler colonial political systems even. Yeah, just general Canadian citizens going about their day, living their daily life, reaping the benefits of colonialism at the cost of our people. Um, how do we how do we contextualize like um, the treaty relationship to them when they hear this for the first time? I would say delicately, but I'm I don't really care for delicately either. All of Canadians, all Canadians need to understand that there was an agreement be- between several nations of people that helped Canada become what Canada is. All of the benefits that they receive uh, from Canada, like the healthcare system, which is uh, funded by the resources on the land, all of that comes from our pocket. Right? It's the unjust, the injustice on us that we cannot access any of the economy that makes Canada one of the richest countries in the world is it's a willful ignorance. Yeah, and that ignorance comes from not understanding nation-to-nation treaty and indigenous nationhood. Settler nations really need to understand that we're, we aren't Canadian. Because again, you, you can't make a treaty with subjects, with your own subjects, which means that we're our own sovereign nations. And that sovereignty is key. But then at the same time, what do we tell settlers when they start to like break it down to how the system is going to work? And I really like what you're saying because you're giving us some... Um, structural analysis of how you know things should ideally operate or at least look like and and i know some people are probably going to try critique what we're talking about and say well no that's not going to work or it's not going to work like that but i mean we're analyzing the problem on the fly and we're looking at it on the fly and uh, we should come together and have a conversation about this as indigenous peoples obviously but for the sake of conversation what do we tell settlers that are like asking the question of well what are we going to do and how are we going to do it I think one of the concerns that I, I encounter quite often with, with settler people is like, well, if you get the land back, what happens to us? I'm like, nothing. You just fall under a different jurisdiction. And you just move the state line a little bit. And we're not we're not talking about creating a governance system that, you know, we're, we're, we're fully in control and we're going to kick everybody out and send them all back to England. We can't do that, first off, mostly because it's an impossibility, but also because we have to honor the treaty that we entered into with colonial states in the first place. You hear these you hear these land acknowledgments. Okay, that's great. That's one step towards what the truth is. People are like saying, This is the traditional lands of the Inanua people or the Neowa people. I'm like, Well, it's not the traditional lands. It's our lands. The very fact that you're standing in a building giving uh giving an acknowledgement to the people that have been robbed of the resources that you use, that your nation used to construct this building is kind of harmful and it, it sets them off in this thing you're like okay well we did a land acknowledgement i get it indigenous people were here like what no we weren't were we are and those claims haven't gone away i don't know of any claims that it's like oh okay canada yeah you're right it's your land now nothing and if we do lose it's because of because of bias or partiality in the justice system yeah, that's true too. Because I mean, even with land claims, right? It's still like, it's still ultimately ours. <laughs> so even if there is losses or it's being stalled, it's still like technically ultimately ours. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, you know, my neighbor has a picnic table. I can't go into my neighbor's yard, take that picnic table, put it up in my yard, and tell him that it's mine. And then if he comes to me and says, "Well, let's resolve this," 
And I say, there's only one way to resolve this, and that's through my opinion of it. And he's not going to get any justice. And that's something as small as a picnic table, and everybody would recognize that as completely unfair of me to do that. But that's what Canada does with our timber, with our fish, with our, our muskrat, like everything. They think they own it all. And then for Treaty 6 territory here, it's agribusiness, like it's agriculture. Um, canola being the main you know, export for Canada, technically speaking, that's, that's a resource from our territory that, that we should have a right to not only um, farm and live a lifestyle where we could sustain our own economy, but it's ours. Well, and, and benefit from, right? right? When you're talking about the sharing of the bounty of the land, the sharing in the bounty and benevolence, you have this maybe, uh, let's say, half of Saskatchewan. Well, half of the, everywhere that there's a treaty, and if you outline the treaty, I'll talk about Manitoba because I know more about it. But Treaty 5 covers the vast majority of the north of Manitoba. That's all treaty land. So all of that land is under an international agreement to share. Yeah, and a lot of people theorize this, like how would it look when, when you know these relationships start to actually look how we intended them to look? And I know a lot of people theorize it from different perspectives and that Treaty 6 sort of gives Canada the, it means that Canada has to, I'm trying to say this without getting tone police because I know there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of um, legalese involved in these conversations, but it's like Canada has to uphold um, their obligation through the crown to provide to us what we agreed to. A lot of people theorize how this would actually look. How would this look in your eyes, in your perspective? Maybe it's just a calculation thing. Maybe Canada just says, okay, well, that's our treaty. This is what the area of the land that you used. Then if we're extracting timber from that, then you get a percentage of that. And it, it should it should be as easy as designing or uh, prescribing. Uh, it should be as easy as prescribing calculations as far as economy goes, right? But then beyond that, you can't just say, okay, well, great. You know, we have all these extractions happening and, and we're getting our benefits from it. We're getting, like, look at the, the gross domestic product of each uh, province. They're in the billions. And First Nations people are still the most impoverished and we have to wait for handouts just to build houses. It's ridiculous. But beyond that, beyond the whole funding issue is the jurisdiction of it. Like, okay, if we share the land, then we also have to share the responsibility of that land. And that's what I believe our ancestors were trying to set us up for. Like, we will have a say in everything that occurs on this land in a coexisting relationship with the settler nation. But it was like, oh, well, we're putting a train here, so everything within miles of that train is now ours and we can do what we want with it, we'll extract the land and that's all ours. It's, uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, and you provide this interesting argument and conversation where, okay, we're, we're living here with the settler state and there's sort of like a clash of paradigms and a clash of systems. But there's always like, even in decolonial conversations, there's always this assumption that we're going to erase the state or we're going to send them all back to the boat. And you said earlier, you know, that's not necessarily the case because we have treaty that brings us into a relationship together to find peace, diplomacy, friendship, and coexist with one another. So how does it look like legally in, in your eyes from your perspective? There's fundamentally no reason to not coexist. I mean, even when Indigenous people make their own law, they're not saying, like, it's not, it's not in contrast with Canadian laws. Like, let's, say, let's, uh, let's assume Treaty 5 gains jurisdiction over their whole governance, right? So they have jurisdiction over their lands. Well, there's still highways that exist through those territories. It's, it's not like we're going to look at those territories and say, well, as soon as you enter into what is now known as Treaty 5 territory, our speed limit changes to 120. Yeah, and then you switch over to the other side of the road, just <laughs> drive on the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that, right? I mean, why would we do that? Let's say criminal law. It's not going to, just because you enter our territory doesn't mean like, oh, okay, well, all of a sudden stealing is fine. The, what, what, would what would differ in that territory would be the way that those, uh, the thieves were managed, or the thieves were handled. Like Canada likes throwing us in jail, but we like being corrective. And they call it a correction facility, but it's more of a, it's a punitive in nature, right? Whereas we had the more reconciliatory based models. 
So it's like, if you wrong this person, correct your behavior, make right with that person and then continue on. And that's, that's what that peaceful coexistence is. It ensures like our communities were so, were so small that like if you and I grew up in the same community and let's say I stole something from you, it wouldn't make sense for us to here, I'll give you 20 bucks for what I stole and move on because you still hold a grudge. And, and our justice system goes deep enough to say, let's, let's work on not having that grudge exist anymore. Right. Whereas Canada is just like, Oh, you did wrong. Okay. Well, compensate for them and move on. Yeah, bro. You've given us a lot to, to think about here and, and just how you're talking about it. Really. I think for a lot of people, they're going to be hearing this for the first time in this way. And, um, I think I'm going to have to, uh, stop, stop here. And I really want to get you on again, you know, as, as, as the momentum grows and things and, and we could have more in-depth conversations. Cause again, like even over here in treaty one to 11 meetings and treaty six meetings, you know, when you sit with old people, these narratives and these conversations could happen for a really long time. Cause there, there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of context in these conversations and we're, we're, yeah. And we're packing this into like a, an hour long podcast and this is just introductory. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add that is primary and vital that our listeners understand when we have conversations about treaty and nation to nation and, and the presence of the settler state? One more point. I just want to make one more point. It's um, in Canada's constitution. They didn't say any, no mention of treaties within their constitution or any of their laws up until 1982. And then when it finally got into the constitution under section 35, we recognize the inherent and treaty rights of indigenous people. They haven't defined and they can't define what those inherent rights are. That's only something that we can define. One of my favorite papers in law school and one of my lowest marked papers, actually, was uh, to my advanced constitutional law prof. And my, my paper was the unconstitutionality of Section 35. Because what Section 35 does is it assumes that we're Canadian citizens. It doesn't allow us to the actual inherent and treaty right of sovereignty. So every time we have a right, we go through Canada's court systems for their opinion on whether or not our opinion is strong enough to exist uh, on this land, right? And if our opinion is that we're sovereign people, then there has to be a different way of, of uh, adjudicating that. And I hope people like you know set their minds to what that could look like. That's what the nation to nation is. The nation to nation isn't, okay, let's do everything Canada's way. That's unilateral and oppressive. The, the nation to nation is you know, the same, same way that we deal with France, the same way that we deal with China. You know, I'm not, I'm not an international legal expert or anything like that, but I do know that we're not Canadian, except for the, uh, the assumed authority that Canada has. And like for me in my work, that's why I position a lot of my governance conversations and, and nationhood building projects from the just the, from the simple linguistic perspective of diplomacy. Um, and that requires more of a diplomatic process, like you say, between nations than than it does from the perspective of having to compromise to um, the settler state. And, and and to speak to that, to our own nation, we we as our, as an Inu, as Mewa, as Anishinaabe, we really have to understand what our treaties were from our perspective. Because if, if we say we want treaty rights, we want treaty rights through a colonial perspective, then those aren't treaty rights. And the treaty, the treaty doesn't grant us our rights. The treaty guarantees our rights as sovereign nations, right? And that's a perspective that I think people need to uh, focus in on a little bit more. It's it's not like a it's not a separatist kind of argument. It's it's a coexistence argument. Yeah, and I think like for me too, and what I I encountered a lot of lefties just because I was a instructor in university, and they always you know were looking at leftist theory, I guess. And and to me, like the left and the right always want to recruit indigenous people. Like they always actively try to recruit indigenous people to justify their own projects. But and, and to me, that's all settler colonial because it's not ours. Um, uh, but what, what I was, was going to say is, is there, there's the assumption that they want a revolution. Uh, and, and to me, it's like, why? Because to me, we didn't even really get the nation to nation agreement to begin with. <laughs> like we didn't get our, our political project to start with. So when you talk about a revolution, what are you talking about? Because we're not going to reset to, to, you know, the 1800s, but 
we already have a treaty. Like, why can't we just invest time into establishing what we wanted to establish and, and see how it unfolds and come together and have these conversations? And that's more radical in my eyes than than drawing on eighteen like 19th century European philosophies <laughs> that are very specific to a region, right? And like, even for me, like I just found out recently that, that even the term anarchist and socialism is a relatively new term. So that doesn't really even apply to me to say I'm a socialist because, you know, those political constructs are newer than, they're more recent than, than how, how long our indigenous nations have been established here in this territory. Yeah, we're, 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 we are pre-colonial nations, right? And we, we exist still. Yeah, I, I kind of think I, 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 I uh, when I did that leftist podcast, I think people identified me as, as being uh, like a communist or a socialist, but I, I critique both from the perspective of indigenous nationhood. And I think that's, I think that's its own category. Yeah, it is. I, yep. Yeah, I think, and that has to be, that, why can't it be its own category? Communism is a non-indigenous term, and socialism is a non-indigenous term. Utilitarianism is, a, you know, those aren't those aren't our terms. And uh, like religion, I, I kind of suggested earlier that I don't prescribe to the terms religion for our, our cultural or spiritual beliefs, because it's just a practice. Right? It's just how we did things. It's it's who we are and how we know ourselves. You know, as soon as what you, what you've mentioned quite a bit is the narrative. Well, who's controlling that narrative? And why do we, why if we know that Canada has done so much wrong to Indigenous people, would we continue to believe their narrative about Indigenous people? This is what my problem with UNDRIP is. And it kind of, uh, it complements your previous comment, is that UNDRIP is an international law that was developed within the last couple of decades. But there's nothing in UNDRIP that we don't already have from treaty, like not necessarily the written text of the treaty, but through the oral accounts of our treaty, through our understanding of the treaty. Like they say we should have jurisdiction over the land. Well, we never lost jurisdiction over the land. They say we should have the right to protect our children. Like we never lost that right. So UNDRIP's trying to, UNDRIP's kind of like a, like a, I don't know, I don't want to call it like a renegotiation of a treaty, but it averts from the attention of actually implementing the treaty. In its true sense. Yeah. And UNDRIP is really like promoted in university 107s or introductory to Indigenous studies classes as something that's really cool. But what you say is correct. And and UNDRIP is ultimately designed for, you know, Indigenous or oppressed people who are who don't have a treaty. And, and we already have that. We already have what those people are trying to negotiate and get established. And, and what, it's, it's no more powerful than, than the treaty. It's definitely not more powerful because Canada still wants to implement it according to their constitution. I mean, you, you, if, you didn't constitu- if you didn't put our treaties in the constitution, then you can't put UNDRIP into our constitution. Try putting the treaties in there, into your constitution truthfully, as a, through our perspective, how we understand the true spirit and intent of the treaty. And then we can talk about what UNDRIP means. What it, what it means to us, right? Some people love it. Some people live by it. But I'm like, well, I haven't seen anything in UNDRIP that doesn't already, wasn't already answered in 1875. Yeah. And of course, like we know with the settler state, they're not going to do that, right? They're not going to actually like try and create a governance system on their side that's going to acknowledge our governance system. But like with what you're saying here, we need to theoretically explore these conversations and have these types of discussions for young people to hear so they could begin to figure out how that's going to look because it has to take us somewhere. And I have faith that it will take us somewhere. Um, If people want to find you, where could they find you online? I kind of hide in the back corner. I don't, you know, it's funny in my post, it's like kind of a sidebar, but in, in my post, people don't really interact. I, I, either I assume they agree with me or they assume they're not going to change my mind, which I'm okay with because I don't want to, I don't want my mind changed on a lot of things anyway. A lot of time to affirm my, my conviction of sovereignty. But yeah, I don't know. I'm on Facebook. Um, I post randomly. I've slowed down a little bit recently. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I guess Facebook's the only social media that I really use. I'll, I'll link your Facebook profile into the show notes if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, man, this is a really good episode. I think a lot of people are going to reflect on this. And I know a lot of young people who are students who listen to this are going to be hearing these conversations for the first time who are, you know, treaty nationals and, and descendants of people who were signatories to treaty. And, you know, their ancestors were striving for that nation to nation agreement. But I mean, your perspective is really important. And, and I really wanted you on the show because you're a, you're a type of guy that's doing a lot of the backhouse work um, that, you know, is doing work behind the scenes. And, and I really want to bring people to the forefront and, and get those perspectives out there. Um, because yeah, we sometimes don't hear and, and get people, we sometimes don't have access to these conversations because there's a lot of grandstanders out there in indigenous governance, a lot of showboats. And, and I don't really like that. I think it does more uh, damage than good, but I'm really glad you're on this podcast sharing this knowledge with us. And, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I'm not in it for myself, you know, like genuinely want to see indigenous people get what is justly theirs. Yeah, for sure. And again, yeah, we'd love to have you back and have more conversations in the future. I'd be glad to. Awesome. Great, Jason. I appreciate everything. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Milo. Nice to right meet on, you, thank by you. the way. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> cool. This episode was produced and mixed by Mylon Tatusis with additional production support by Daryl Lucero and Peyton Jackson. If you like what we do, please like, subscribe, and share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Radical Narrative Podcast. If you wish to contact us, our website is www.radicalnarrative.com.